It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and this is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount. On this show, we're getting to the bottom of what still holds women back from women who are beating the odds. Think about it this way, how creepy this is, right? This is a guy sitting in another state who is essentially in your daughter's bedroom. Here to help me introduce this week's episode is my producer, Sari Soffer. So this week, we're back in Texas, where the fight for abortion access, voting rights, representation is all coming to a head in a way that should make all of us scared. We have on the show Royce Brooks and Wendy Davis. Royce is the executive director of Annie's List, which recruits and helps elect progressive women to statewide office in Texas. And Wendy Davis was a former Texas Senate member representing a district that includes Fort Worth. And some people might remember when she rose to national fame in 2013 by famously filibustering a restrictive abortion bill in the Senate for somewhere around 11 hours. Members, I'm rising on the floor today to humbly give voice to thousands of Texans. She successfully killed the bill then, but it was eventually reintroduced and passed. And fast forward not even a decade later, and Texas Republicans passed the most restrictive abortion law in the country this summer. It restricts the procedure when cardiac activity is detected, which is around five or six weeks, which of course is before most women even know they're pregnant. And just to note that we recorded this episode on Friday afternoon, which was right in between this epic back and forth when a federal judge in Texas put a temporary hold on the law and allowed abortions to resume in the state while a Justice Department lawsuit made its way through the courts. But lo and behold, right after our conversation, that was reversed by the super conservative 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals and the ban went back into effect. And you were in Texas for all of that, right, Jen? Correct. I was there interviewing lawmakers for the Circus on Showtime, which is a political docu-series that I co-host. And it was truly a harrowing and roller coaster of a week. Yeah, I can't wait to hear more about it. We'll also look back on how this unfolded in Texas over many years and what it means for the rest of America. Then we have to talk about the voting rights legislation that's making it significantly harder for people to vote, especially marginalized populations. And finally, will one of our guests run for governor? <laughs> nice plug. <laughs> Let's get to it. Bryce Brooks and Wendy Davis, welcome to Just Something About Her. Thank you. Thanks. Happy to be here. All three of us are in Austin, but I have been in your state for almost a week, and I got to say, it has been an emotional roller coaster. We are speaking on Friday, October 8th, and I interviewed uh, State Senator Brian Hughes this week for the circus. So I'm sorry. He... I'm sorry for you. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. And he is the author of both the abortion bill in the Senate and the elections overhaul bill, what they refer to as the voter integrity bill. They being the Republicans in the Texas state legislature. He was a trial lawyer and he said that's how he knew how to construct the abortion bill, to have these bounties, to have it enforced by people ratting on their neighbors. He says it's it's not about trying to get around um, Roe v. Wade. But Wendy, can you tell us what is actually happening here with this bill? Well, first of all, I don't know anyone who'd want to take credit for this diabolically evil bill, but it's fascinating that Brian Hughes is claiming to have come up with this litigation strategy when actually we all know it was another individual who had been testing this theory at the local level in many different communities around the state. And having had success in shutting a Planned Parenthood clinic down in Lubbock, they decided to try this at the statewide level. And you're exactly right, Jennifer, this was done specifically to get around Roe. And the way that it was designed sought to deny any state involvement whatsoever, any state action, because where other states have tried this and implemented six-week bans, immediately their circuit court or the Supreme Court have issued injunctions because it is patently against the constitutional precedent that a state would interfere with that constitutional right. Yes, many people will remember the Georgia abortion bill in 2019 that was ruled unconstitutional. Yes. Here, they put it in the hands of individuals, these vigilantes, and to show you how absolutely absurd the bill is, a debarred lawyer in Arkansas and a disbarred lawyer in Illinois were the two first plaintiffs to sue under it. Think about it this way, how creepy this is, right? This is a a guy sitting in another state who is essentially in your daughter's bedroom, right? I mean, that's essentially what this boils down to. And dictating to her what she can and cannot do with her body. And I think everyone finds that repulsive, and it's fascinating to me that even in Florida, they're shying away from taking such an extreme approach because I think they understand that ultimately this backfires. But the fascinating thing in Texas politics is they can't get far enough right of each other, right? They, right? They've decided that the general elections don't matter. The only thing they need to care about is whether they're going to get run at from the right in a primary. And they crawl so far to the right on top of each other and over each other. It's, it's fascinating and disgusting all at the same time. Because right now, a very small percentage of our registered voters in Texas actually voted to put Greg Abbott in office and Ken Paxton in office. In fact, I think it's somewhere around 9% of registered voters voted in that Republican primary that made them the candidate in the last election cycle. And now we, the 70 plus percent of Texans who disagree with what they're doing, are stuck with their terrible, terrible quote-unquote, leadership. I mentioned that the hosts of Showtime's The Circus are all here covering Texas this week. And my co-host, Alex Wagner, interviewed a doctor who told her the story of the first woman she had to turn away under this new six-week abortion law. The patient was 18 years old and at the University of Texas. And because of previous laws that had been passed in Texas, this young woman was required to wait 24 hours after her first doctor's appointment before she could legally get the procedure. And in that time period, the doctor heard a heartbeat. 
making it illegal under the new law. And I just didn't appreciate until I got to Texas the long game these legislators have been playing, making it harder and harder for patients and providers. Texas has enacted 26 abortion restrictions in the past decade, which has reduced the number of clinics from 46 clinics in 2011 to only 21 clinics in 2017. Right. So it feels like this has been a long time coming, right? Absolutely. And this feels sudden for some people, but it's part of a a years long strategic process. Policy takes years to be ideated and enacted. And the idea of not just simply regulating um, abortion providers out of existence, but going so far as to ban abortion is something that we've been seeing in cities in Texas for some time now. They then decided to attempt it statewide. Frankly, I don't think that they actually expected to have that ban enacted. I wonder about that. Yeah. Uh, I think that they have surprised themselves with that and are wondering among themselves whether they have overstepped. I have heard some chatter about that in this town. Either some members are claiming, I didn't know how drastic it was. I didn't realize what they were voting for and or they certainly didn't think it was going to take effect as quickly as it did. They thought this case was going to the Supreme Court. They did not think that it would be enacted and that they would be dealing with it in, you know, September and October of 2021. Well, they certainly knew what they were voting for. Yeah. So people first heard your name, Wendy, from when you remember the Texas state Senate, you filibustered for 13 hours in 2013 in your pink sneakers, that would have banned abortion at 20 weeks. Very frustrating to feel like the choices you have made for your baby's life and death are not being respected. When you look back on that moment, did you think that we were on this trajectory? I mean, at the time we saw Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court and we held out hope that we would be able to articulate a position that would bring him our way. Was that your strategy in the filibuster? Yes, no question. Okay. And we knew that by laying out the personal narratives of people who were impacted by that law, that we might have an opportunity to reach Justice Kennedy, who we understood to be, of course, the swing vote on the Supreme Court. And that indeed is what happened. It's interesting, Jennifer, that you talked about the bill as a 20-week abortion ban, because I want your listeners to understand that that's exactly what Republicans want us to remember about that law. In fact, that wasn't even a part of the law until the very end. They added it on as an amendment so that they could use it as a talking point, right? That what they were trying to do was ban late-term abortions. And Justice Kennedy saw through that. And now, of course, the court is completely different. And so could I have seen at that point in time how bad things would get? Absolutely not. And I'll tell you, even as of September the 1st, I thought we were going to wake up that day and the Supreme Court was going to enjoin the enforcement of that law. And it is just astounding and shocking and incredibly disappointing that they did not enjoin its enforcement when it's so patently clear 
that it was designed specifically to get around a test of its constitutionality. And right now, regardless of what the Supreme Court does, Roe v. Wade is the law of the land until they decide, um, and they potentially will when they take up the Mississippi case in December, it's still the law of the land. And so to allow a situation where abortion was completely curtailed in the state of Texas while Roe still stands is just absolutely not in keeping with their duty as Supreme Court justices and demonstrates how tremendously political this court has become thanks to the three appointees that Donald Trump was able to make. Ten states have trigger laws that would immediately ban abortion if the Supreme Court rules against Roe v. Wade. And Planned Parenthood has said that there's more than a dozen states that are primed to follow. So I just want to note that. Wendy, how does this compare to the legislation that you filibustered so famously in 2013? Well, you know, back then what we were fighting was a a different strategy of the anti-abortion movement. It involved the targeted regulation of abortion providers, putting unique and onerous regulations on abortion facilities so that they would be forced to close. And what it immediately did was that it closed more than half of our clinics. We had 42 clinics when that law went into effect. And even though the Supreme Court actually did enjoin the full enforcement of that law while it waited to take it up and decide its constitutionality, it still did force the closure because a portion of the bill went into place. It still forced the closure of of over half of them. And even now, Only, I think, four of the clinics that closed have reopened because it's so difficult to get an abortion clinic up and going again, get the doctors and the the other medical care workers that are needed there to reopen a facility. So many people in Texas were already living hundreds of miles away from the nearest abortion facility. And now, of course, That dynamic exists all over the state with the shuttering of most of our clinics as a consequence of SB8. On Wednesday night, an Obama judge, Judge Pittman, a federal judge here in Texas, held up on the enforcement of the Texas six-week abortion ban. In a strongly worded 113-page ruling, Judge Robert Pittman said the law was blatantly unconstitutional. From the moment SB8 went into effect, women have been unlawfully prevented from exercising control over their lives. And this court will not sanction one more day of this offensive deprivation of such an important right. Royce, can you explain where we are in this process, what's likely to happen next and the impact on women in Texas. Absolutely. Well, Judge Pittman called it out. In like very stark language. Yes. (laughs) You know, this was like, this was a very spicy judicial uh, ruling that you would not expect to get from a, a federal judge because of its very unique and contorted sort of design of the citizen enforcement, the bounties. Exactly. Well, and I think that it's so important for this to be called out in plain um, language and to be sort of shut down, because if they can come after such a a well-established right by simply outsourcing the enforcement, it's not going to stop at abortion access. You know, name your right that we think of as being well-established 
right to vote, for example, which is also um, very much under attack here in Texas. You can't let them get away with it. I mean, I'm not sure if they designed this bill to be enacted or if they designed this bill to go through courts, right? There's a provision in it that says if the bill is going through judicial review, and you all correct me if I have this wrong, you know, if, if, if an abortion is performed during that window, they could be held responsible retroactively, anticipating that the bill would go through the courts. You, you make such a strong point before that, which is what is the point of this legislation? Not only is it absolutely the case, as Wendy pointed out, that most Texans are not in favor of this. There was a poll I saw this week that said, I think, 46% oppose and 42% support. At any rate, there was a poll this week that showed that public support was not on the side of this legislation. And and that's a national poll. Oh, okay. But in Texas, it's actually more than 70%. So it's really fascinating wow. when this is at your doorstep, when you realize that your rights are going to be invaded in such an egregious way, suddenly you wake up pay attention to and dig in on your own feelings about potential legislation like this. So it's actually much higher support uh, against this law in Texas than it is nationally. And I want to make sure that your listeners know we have created a fund specifically to indemnify these frontline abortion care providers so that if and when they are sued, uh, they will have the resources they need to pay any fines or opposing counsel fees that they might incur if they're found liable. It's called uh, fundthefrontlinetx.org is our website, and there's a donate button on there. Wendy, you grew up in Texas, right? I did. So you have lived this because my understanding is that you were 10 when the Roe v. Wade case was settled. As a young child, do you have any memory of that or of women in Texas? I don't. I don't. But, you know, I had the benefit, as did Royce, of growing up in a Texas where this was something that was provided as part of our reproductive autonomy and access, of course, to contraceptive care and our ability to control our economic destiny because we could control our reproductive autonomy and, and for me, Jennifer, I'm such a living example of that. I was 18 uh, when I found out that I was pregnant. I had my daughter, Amber, when I was 19 years old. I became a single mom. I was living in poverty. I was working two jobs and trying to figure out how in the world I was going to scramble out of it. And if it hadn't been for a Planned Parenthood clinic that provided me with the contraceptive care that I needed, if I'd had an, a second unplanned pregnancy... I am absolutely sure that I wouldn't have been able to make my climb out of that. And that's what this is all about. This isn't about abortion per se. This is about a much bigger issue. And it's whether we as individuals, whether women or our trans or non-binary community who seek abortion care, if we can't control our reproductive destiny, not only does that hurt us individually and hurt the children that we already have. It also hurts the workforce and therefore the overall economy. And we've certainly seen with COVID and the dramatic curtailment of women in the workforce as a consequence of the challenge of finding affordable quality childcare, which is a whole nother podcast topic. We've seen what happens when women are pushed out of the workforce. This bill is going to do the very same thing. This law will do the very same thing if it is 
allowed to stand. And it, it's it's such a tragedy at the individual level, but it's such a tragedy for us as a state and as a country as well. Did you find that, Royce, that that has been a galvanizing moment? Do you feel like that there's a big response to it? It does seem that there is within the country. It absolutely has galvanized people here. You know, people forget that Roe v. Wade is in fact a Texas case, right? And what happens in Texas matters. And, you know, we do have elections coming up. In fact, a very big set of elections. Every legislative seat in the state will be on the ballot next year. Every member of the U.S. House will be on the ballot. All of our statewide offices will be on the ballot, including Greg Abbott and indicted Attorney General Ken Paxton. And I think that people will absolutely remember not just this, but the attempts to strip away their voting rights. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's time um, for change. And if this is the level of awfulness yeah. that we have to sink to to get people to pay attention, then that's kind of where we are. All right, that's a good time to take a break and pay some bills. Then I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about what Royce just mentioned, Republicans' attempt to strip away voting rights from people in Texas. And we'll take a look at what that means for the district Wendy represented in the Senate. That's next with Royce Brooks and Wendy Davis on Just Something About Her. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back to Just Something About Her. We're here with Royce Brooks, the executive director of Annie's List, which helps elect women to statewide office in Texas. And we're also joined by Wendy Davis, who is previously a member of the Texas State Senate, most known for her filibuster against a previously restrictive abortion bill. We're together to talk about the recently enacted Texas law that bans abortion after six weeks, before most women know they're even pregnant. One thing that about the Texas bill is there's no exemption for rape or incest. That's right. Which, yeah, I mean, Wendy just had to like shut her eyes for a second because it's just like so wrenching. But you know what? That guy is intellectually consistent. Truth. You know, I've heard a lot of Republicans say, don't want to go there. Don't want to go to rape and incest because it's so impounding of tragedy and loss of agency and rights. But you know, not this guy. He says, I, you know, life is sacred. All life is sacred and that you don't want to compound the problem for the woman by having her go through this traumatic abortion because he's so concerned. Because we care about women so much. I'm sorry. He does, Wendy. He does. And you're just like, this is an epic battle. <laughs> like what's happening in Texas, the combination of the abortion rights, the voting rights, it does feel like a battle of the bulge moment of a 
patriarchal structure where white men have been in charge and they're fighting to the end. What does it feel like you're living this epic fight every day? It's about and building to. This is about holding power, plain and simple. And the unfortunate and and terrible thing about it, Jennifer, is that it is leaving human being after human being after human being in its wake. And for all the self-righteousness of Brian Hughes and and his uh, ability with a straight face to say that he's operating from and, and through the voice of God, right? This is a legislature that has turned its back repeatedly on the needs of people in our state. Our foster care system in Texas has been overseen by a federal court for years now because so many children continue to die and be abused in it. This legislature completely removed any permitting requirements for openly carrying a gun in Texas. This is a legislature that has systematically dismantled the family planning services that ought to be there so that people can prevent unplanned pregnancies. They also are the state that has continued to fought very hard against Medicaid expansion, which has left us with the highest percentage of uninsured people in the country. And we all know not just the individual, but the economic toll that that takes. So they are not allowed, in my humble opinion, to claim some self-righteous ideal about protecting we women who don't know how to take care of ourselves. And in the long run, they're doing everything they can to not be held accountable for it with their voter ID and other extreme voter suppression laws. And let's remember that Texas is the place, and in fact, Fort Worth is the community where Royce and I are both from, where they made an example out of Crystal Mason, who was on probation, who voted a provisional ballot in an election because she and the election judge weren't quite sure if she could vote. She voted provisionally so that they could determine that. Provisional ballot just means that the you cast a ballot, they put it aside, they check it to make sure you have the right to do it. And she did it. And what happened? And what happened was she was found to have violated her probation because she violated the law and she went back to jail. For voting. They make an example of people and they particularly make an example of people of color because they want as much as they can to intimidate them from participating and reacting to the ridiculously white male oriented agenda of the Texas legislature. Bryce, just to to remind listeners about this voting rights bill, because there's so much that's happened in Texas and we've been focused on abortion for the last month. You know, if you have a couple of examples so that people understand why this bill is particularly problematic uh, for women, for people of color. Absolutely. This voter suppression legislation that we've seen is a direct response and a direct backlash to the gains in power that we've seen in communities of color in particular. And the gains have have been steady, right? And Republicans can count. And they decided they needed to do something about it. This all really came to a head in the 2020 elections with COVID, where because of the need to have some safety protections, we saw 
um, cities and counties across Texas, taking some creative measures to do that. So now among the provisions in this voter suppression legislation is the basically rolling back of jurisdictions' ability to enact those kinds of very common sense conveniences to protect voters. But the real heart of the legislation, I think, gets back to a word that Wendy used earlier, intimidation. The core of this legislation is the ability for partisan individuals to have access to voting locations and to, in effect, be put into into the position to intimidate voters. That's now something that is being officially sanctioned by the state. And it's disgusting. And that goes hand in hand with an ongoing redistricting process that is... That's happening right now in the Texas legislature, yeah. It's happening as we speak that is very deliberately suppressing and curtailing the power of communities of color, despite the fact that 95% of the population growth that Texas saw over the past decade is people of color. Um, Somehow the uh, legislature has managed to propose a, a congressional map wherein people of color have a smaller proportion of representation or a smaller opportunity to elect candidates of choice than in the previous map. This is an adjacent issue, redistricting. But just for people to give an example of how it plays out, and we'll use Wendy's district as an example. So this is a district that you represented from 2009 to 2015, Senate District 10 in Tarrant County. Is that right? That's right. Okay, so District 10 has an eligible voter population that's 54% white, 20% Hispanic, 21% black, and 3% Asian. Non-white voters have been on the rise and electing more diverse candidates for the last decade, you know, including you. But the new proposed Senate map, the new redistricting, splits up the district and paired it with counties to the south and west that make the district more white, more rural, and much more likely to vote uh, Republican. So under the proposed changes, the district's voting age population would be 62% white, 17% Hispanic, as opposed to 20, um, 17% Black, 2% Asian. So they're just like watering down the impact of the people of color. What do the future districts look like for the old Senate District 10? And like, what does that mean for your constituents, particularly people of color? What's the impact? It's a tremendous impact on the communities of color in Tarrant County, tremendously negative one. When I represented that community and had the privilege of being elected by a coalition of Latino, Black, and white voters, I, of course, understood that I was answerable to the community that elected me to serve them. And in 2011, during the last round of redistricting, the legislature did tear the district apart. They, they separated the Hispanic voters from the Black voters um, to neuter their voices. And they put each of those communities into dramatically Republican areas that were literally, in some instances, more than 100 miles away from where they lived and had no common interest with. But we had Section 5 still protecting us, that pre-clearance portion of the Voting Rights Act. Just so people know what that is, 
there was a section in the Voting Rights Act that required certain states and localities, generally southern states, because they had had such a bad history of making it hard for black people to vote. They had to get federal approval before making any changes to voting rules to make sure that they were not discriminatory. But the Supreme Court struck down that provision of the Voting Rights Act in 2013. That's what allowed all of these state legislators to pass all of the bad voting rights bills we're seeing now. But Wendy, what you're talking about was back in 2011, right? Yes, we did sue. We were in court for somewhere around a year and we got the district put back together. Now here we are with a a Supreme Court that has decided that we don't need Section 5 anymore because, of course, racism is a thing of the past. And we have lost the ability to fight. And they've torn the district apart again. And it's about two things. It's not only about tearing away the ability for people in that community to elect a candidate of their choice in the immediate go around. It's also the fact that when you have swing districts, which SD10 is, they are competitive. And when they are competitive, that means that voters are staying engaged, that politicians are registering voters, turning out voters and keeping the turnout high. And where turnout is high, it always favors Democrats in our state. And when you look at the way the maps are drawn right now, the proposed maps, the congressional map, the state house map, the state senate map, there is one thing that they all have in common. And that is that they have removed any swing districts so that there are now solidly red districts and solidly blue ones, of course, more red than blue, but no swing seats remaining. And the reason for that is because they want throughout the state For the excitement of an election where money is being spent, where voters are being registered, where turnout is increasing, they want that to go away. It is a part of the overall long-term voter suppression plan that they have in place. And unfortunately, it is likely to be very successful because, as you know from your political experience, Jennifer, when you're investing in voter turnout, you are creating a, a voter participation that otherwise would not exist. That is what you know Georgia did well over the last decade plus. That's right. Right. Build the troops at the ground roots, really inform voters. You know, Annie's List does a lot of work to recruit women and support women running for office. But what else do you think needs to happen in Texas to build that kind of structure at the grassroots level? Is it the national parties? You know, probably no, that doesn't work. (laughs) I can tell you, I work for the national party. You need it to be Texans, right? That's absolutely right. We know what needs to happen to make change. It's the same way that change has always been made in this country, and that is in coalition and from the ground up, right? Texas is different from Georgia in a lot of ways as well. We are uh, a lot bigger, you know, Texas is the size of France, basically. And and the regions are very, some of these regions are very conservative. I think people forget that. I think people that don't live in Texas think it's Houston, Austin, and Dallas. And it's like, what's the problem? It's going to turn blue in five minutes. (laughs) But it is like really conservative in some parts, right? It's very conservative in some parts. 
but also, you know, what what matters to people in Amarillo is not necessarily what matters to people in Houston, is not necessarily what matters to people in the Valley. One size fits all is not a thing here that will never work. And the way to create change, uh, it starts with listening to those communities. There are a number of us working in community and in communication with each other, each to try to own our piece of this responsibility, understanding that in a state of 27 plus million people, there can never be enough of us and there can never be enough resources flowing into Texas to make that work possible. And Royce is right, it won't happen overnight. And we need investment that understands this is a long-term project and not to be disappointed and not to stop the work because in a single election cycle, we don't succeed. We've got to stay at it. On that note, time for a quick break. Then I want to ask Royce and Wendy what they think is up with all of these men running for office in Texas. That's next on Just Something About Her. And we're back to just something about her with executive director of Annie's List, Royce Brooks, and former Texas state senator turned nonprofit founder, Wendy Davis. Royce, you had a great quote where you said Republicans are falling all over themselves to be more extreme than each other. Uh, They are taking it on the women of Texas with a lot of these policies. And you added that these attacks are galvanizing women. So what is up with all the men running statewide, (laughs) you guys? You guys, y'all, great. Matthew Dowd, former Republican, strategist for President Bush, now running as a Democrat, Lieutenant Governor. Better work is considering another run as governor. I mean, Matthew McConaughey, who I know Royce is a really big fan. Um, I hope I'm not betraying a confidence. I know Royce is a really big fan of the notion that Matthew McConaughey might run for governor. Shocking. You know, like all these great white guys are rising up to take this on. Wendy, you've done this once before. Do you think there's any chance that you will run? This cycle, no, there's not. I like that you said this cycle, right. this cycle. <laughs> I just finished a congressional run, and anyone who's been a candidate knows that, you know, you got to catch your breath again. And I'm not ruling out the possibility that I might want to do that or hope to have the privilege of doing that in the future. And I am disappointed that at this point, we only have white men on the Democratic statewide slate. I think we might see some changes in that. I've heard some rumors. I won't reveal them, but since I'm on the ground now in Austin, I've been like doing some recon. I've heard some good rumors about that happening. Absolutely. And I hope it does. You know, we, we need a diverse ticket not only a a gender diverse one, but of course a a diverse one in terms of race and ethnicity. And I hope that if we do field candidates who offer that kind of balance on our ticket, that we'll all do everything we can to support them because it is a lonely, hard job and they need us, all, all of our Democratic candidates need us to surround them with our support so that they are best positioned to succeed in a general election. So my final question for both of you is, 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 you know, because I'm an optimistic person, so I I look at a situation like this and I want to see Texas is in the throes of this battle right now, but that it will come out of it stronger, building up a sort of revitalized democracy that actually represents the state. But, you know, when you all 
have to face if you feel optimistic about where the state can go and will go um, or not? Where do, where do you come down? I am a, a sixth generation Texan, right? My, my family is from here. Texans are my family, right? Texans are the folks I grew up with and, you know, my friends and some of my exes live in Texas, you know, <laughs> they are not these cruel, mostly men who are trying to maintain power at all costs and, and who are imposing this reprehensible legislation on the rest of us. You know, Texas is Barbara Jordan, right? Texas is Anne Richards. Texas is Beyonce. Yes. You know, like that's, that is my Texas. And I know that we have it in us to manifest that Texas in our leadership. What about you, Wendy? The thing that keeps me optimistic about the future of our state are the young people that live here and that are engaging every day. This is the work that we do at Deeds Not Words, engaging high school and college age young people to use their voices to advocate for change, to register, to vote, and to create the Texas that they're going to inherit and to take it away from us, honestly, because our generation has done a pretty crummy job of taking care of their futures. And I, I just hold out so much hope with them because of them. And I can tell you there are some extraordinary young people in our state who give me great confidence about what the future of Texas will be. Royce, Wendy, thank you both so much. Great. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us to do this, Jennifer. Sarah, are you there? I'm here. And I kind of want to start by asking you, you know, talked a lot about your experience interviewing legislators for the circus. I watched the episode. It's great. It is really good. It's a really good episode. And your conversation with Senator Hughes is just really, you can tell it's tense, but I wanted to hear your perspective on what you learned from that confrontation. <laughs> he didn't need to talk to me, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I made sure when I walked in, I said, I hope someone Googled me, like you understand who you're sitting <laughs> down with. I think it's really important to illuminate, you know, who these people are, how they make their arguments. You got to hear it. And I just felt like as a woman sitting there, I had to say to him, you know, he's talking about, we were talking about rape and incest. You know, when I hear him say that, I just, I get filled with anger and it feels righteous, right? It doesn't feel like the devil put that in me. It feels like my God gave me judgment and a conscience and a mind that I make these decisions mm -hmm. myself. I, I came out of Texas really exhausted because I, I feel there is no feeling that makes me more, that takes more out of me than feeling powerless. Yep. And, you know, to be talking to this man who had the power to take away these rights from women, to decide that biology is destiny, mm -hmm. to make it harder for people to vote. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Very tough. I was having an emotional week doing research for this, so I can't even imagine. It really triggers something in me. I think it triggers something in every woman. One of the other things that I wanted to highlight from the conversation, you know, you mentioned that Senator Hughes, this uh, was his like legal creation, was this bill with the bounty aspect of it. And Wendy said how it was not in fact his legal creation, but happened in local jurisdictions like Lubbock, Texas. And I hadn't heard about this, so I looked it up. Uh -huh. um, but basically in 2020, a Planned Parenthood opened in Lubbock and anti-abortion activists weren't happy. So they gathered enough signatures to bring forward an ordinance, just like the one we're seeing statewide now. 
calling it a sanctuary city for the unborn ordinance that allows people to sue anyone who assists someone getting an abortion. The city council ended up voting it down for conflicting with state law and Supreme Court rulings, but it was put to a citywide vote and the city voted in support of the ordinance. So if you think about how these like sneaky loophole written laws are tested out on a local level and then they create copycats on a state level and then that creates copycats around the country, it's just really scary because Roe doesn't even really protect against that, as we've seen. Yeah. What it reveals is the pro-lifers advancing these bills do not believe they're constitutional. Right. I mean, look at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is very conservative right now. If you thought that you could overturn Roe v. Wade, you would go for it. Right. You would just do just that instead of creating a really creative bill about with bounties and vigilantes. It's wild. Brian Hughes is like, you know, we have a history of using them. Yes, like, yes, I'm aware we have a history <laughs> of vigilante justice in America. Got it. Doesn't make it right. Thought we had evolved beyond it. Yeah. One thing people should be aware of is how this doesn't happen overnight. You know, there are so many abortion restrictions that were already on the books in Texas. And this new law lays on top of all of that, which makes it virtually impossible for anyone to ever get an abortion. Because by the time you've gone through all of the rigmarole, mm-hmm. you're clearly beyond six weeks. Right. Even if you do happen to know that you're pregnant, yeah, you have to be mindful of the drip, drip, drip of the small bills that are building up to these big moments. I think it's the battle of the bulge. I think it's like the last gasp of people that want to restrict to keep things the way they have been, restrict who has rights, restrict who can do well in this country. And, you know, however it is that you can get engaged, you need to do it because the outcome is very uncertain. It could go either way. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount. Thank you to Royce Brooks and Wendy Davis for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll and Logan Romju engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. And Sari Soffer is our producer.